Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. So this past week, I'm standing in line at Chipotle with my son, and he asks me, who exactly is Philemon? (laughs) Now, (laughs) this question is not as random as you think it is, because I've been studying this biblical book called Philemon. And so I had about two minutes before ordering a burrito to try and share what I've learned about Philemon, which is about the time I think we have together before we pray and get started this morning. So Philemon, he was a wealthy man, and he was a homeowner in the city of Colossae. Philemon placed his faith in Jesus, and then he graciously opened his home to host church in Colossae. So in ancient Colossae, if you had a house... You had slaves. Now, slavery was a bit different in those days from American slavery and European slavery, but dehumanizing nonetheless. And they were on the bottom of the social caste. And so Philemon's house had a slave named Useful. In their language, Onesimus. Well, Onesimus steals some things from Philemon. And runs away. Which in those days means you are a walking dead man. And he makes it all the way to Rome. And he encounters a strange and joyful man living in house arrest named Paul. Now, Paul could conform to the Greco-Roman way. Paul could... And possibly according to law and definitely according to custom, should turn Onesimus in. But as one scholar, Cynthia Westfall, puts it, Paul is a non-conformist in the Greco-Roman culture. Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world. So instead, Paul tells Onesimus about Jesus. Who being the very nature of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be leveraged for his own. Who didn't just see those on the margins or at the bottom of the social caste, but identified himself with them. Who welcomed outsiders, who welcomed the marginalized. And well, Onesimus embraces Jesus. Becomes a brother in Christ. To Paul, to you, to me. And what happens next is as amazing. Paul doesn't say, okay, Philemon, I'm so glad you have a personal relationship with Jesus now as you were. No, Paul understands that the gospel, the good news of King Jesus, has relational, social implications. So what does he do? Well, Paul learns that Onesimus is a slave to Philemon. Remember, who hosts 
the church in Colossae. Remember? Paul knew about this church. He didn't plant this church, but he heard a report about this church while in house arrest. And so Paul likely puts two and two together and therefore sends two letters to Colossae. One addressed to the church and one addressed to Philemon. But Paul sends more than just these two letters. He also sends Onesimus. And Paul says in his letter to Philemon, Onesimus is a brother in Christ. Welcome him in the very same way that you would welcome me, an apostle of Jesus. And whatever he owes you, charge it to my account. This is unbelievably shocking, as shocking as the gospel of Jesus itself. One scholar, N.T. Wright, he points out that Paul is basically enacting the cross of Jesus in this moment of his life and ministry. He is enacting the gospel that he preached. Jesus says, welcome them as you Welcome me. Jesus says, whatever they owe, Lord, charge it to my account. Accept them as my brother. Is it any wonder, therefore, that this little cross-shaped letter in our Bibles from this cross-shaped apostle has been described as the time bomb that would blow up Dehumanizing social institutions like slavery. Um, if slavery was an engine, Paul just snipped the fuel lines with the gospel right here and right now. Okay, so I didn't say all of that in line at Chipotle. <laughs> I didn't say all of that, uh, but close. And I think it'll help us understand and even kind of embody and step inside of the world of these two letters that we're going to explore this morning. The first being. Colossians, and the second, of course, being Philemon. But let's first pray. Lord, would the words of my mouth and would the meditation of all of, my, of all of our hearts here this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you? You are our rock and you are our redeemer. And by your Holy Spirit, Lord, would you open the eyes of our hearts so that we would actually see Jesus this morning and worship him. What we need most this morning, we confess is our hearts to behold the beauty of Jesus. That's what we need the most. We think we need other things, but honestly, Lord, what we need is to see your beauty and to be transformed and transfixed. And so do that this morning, yes, through your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the best place I've learned to find a cast iron skillet, if you are in the market, is in somebody else's trash. Okay? Uh, or their garage sale. Why? Because a lot of folks buy a cast iron skillet with high hopes, but then the food starts to stick, right? Can I get an amen? The food starts to stick. The thing's heavy. It's clunky. It starts to dry. Maybe it even starts to rust. And so what do they do? They throw it away or they give it away. The cast iron skillet is promising, but for many, maybe most, it just stops working, you know? It just stops working. Um... Here you go. 
<laughs> now, I'm guilty of this. I am absolutely guilty of this. I got a cast iron skillet when I moved to Columbus. Uh, but today, I don't even know where it is. I really don't. I have no idea. I tried to think about it. I don't know where it is. It just stopped working. I know, that's a shame. It stopped working. But here's the thing. I have a friend, and many of you have this same friend, uh, who cooks with her grandmother's cast iron, okay? This thing has thousands of meals prepared on it. This thing, we're talking generations of people nourished from the sort of like um, iron patina of this skillet. This circular slab of iron. And so I know in my head that this thing is faithful. I know it's indestructible. I know it cannot fail. But still, I gave up. I gave up. It stopped working for me. And this alerts me to something that I want to think about with you. I have to, in this moment, face the facts that maybe the problem isn't with the cast iron skill. Uh, maybe it's me. Maybe cast iron skills work brilliantly, but just not to my expectations and just not maybe to my preferences. Well, we do the same with Christianity, don't we? We hear about Jesus. We follow him with high hopes. We see other people walking with Jesus. We think, oh my goodness, this is it. But then life with Jesus gets sticky. It gets heavy, it gets clunky, it gets awkward, it gets difficult. Our expectations and even our preferences are crossed one too many times. Christianity just stops working. It stops working. So here's my question this morning. What do we do when Christianity stops working? That's the question. Okay, to stretch my cast iron analogy to the limits. Um, it seems we have two options in this moment. It seems we have two options as well. We can do the back shelf option, or we can do the back alley option. So the back shelf op option is we keep it, but we just stop using it. So that when life with Jesus gets hard, you know, we're tempted to just throw our faith to the back shelf. Now, we would never get rid of Jesus in a public way, because that's way too scary. So we keep him around, so we think. But in practice, we don't rely on him at all. When it's go time, when it's go time, we don't grab Jesus. We grab other things that seem to work better. That's the back shelf option. And then there's the back alley option. I mean, in my house, we put our trash in the back alley. And so when Christianity stops working for us, this is when we just give it up entirely. We don't put our faith on hold. We put our faith in the trash bin. We say, no thanks, not for me. I want to say for folks who've endured spiritual abuse, uh, pitching the faith has a devastating but understandable logic, which is why Jesus reserves his fury for the Pharisees who are spiritual abusers. But folks give up on Jesus for all kinds of reasons, right? Intellectual hang-ups, unasked for suffering, or like the seed that falls among thorns, according to Jesus, faith just gets choked out by the worries of life or the lure of wealth. And so we look at all the happy cast iron users in the universe and we say, no thanks, not for me. I'm glad it works for you. Not for me. I'm going to TJ Maxx. <laughs> and there's a nice thick skillet waiting for me. 
<laughs> well, what if there's a third option? What if instead of throwing away our faith or throwing it in the back shelf, what if we decided to reapproach it or reseason it? We could dig deeper into our own assumptions about faith, our own assumptions about what it means to walk with Jesus. In patience, we could actually face the fact that the way of Jesus is ancient, that the way of Jesus is indestructible. And so when it stops working for us, we could see that as an invitation to dig deeper, to grow. So that the British wordsmith G.K. Chesterton gets at this when he writes, well, that doesn't, that's definitely not what he wrote. He writes this. The problem with Christianity is not that it has been tried and found lacking, but that it has been found difficult and left untried. In other words, don't throw the pan out, friends. And don't throw it into the back shelf. Don't give up on Jesus is what I want to say. I learned recently that the ancient church valued patience. They value patience above every other virtue. And I believe that Chesterton quote is basically calling on us to be patient with Jesus when Christianity stops working. Be patient. And I see the Apostle Paul doing the same in these letters, especially Colossians. We might think the struggle that I just described is unique to our secular age. But the ancient church in Colossae was up against something very similar. So that in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, this neatly summarizes their struggle. Paul says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue. Okay, So just as you received Him, continue. Continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And so notice what's going on in this passage. Number one, they received Christ Jesus as Lord. They bought in. They bought in. But something happens along the way. And whatever happens along the way is where that comma is at the end of the first line. Something happens so that they stop continuing the way that they began. There's something happened. Paul wouldn't have to say continue in him if they were no longer continuing to live in him. So they must have been putting Jesus on the back shelf and grabbing other things that seemed to work better. And we get hints of that in the letter of Colossians. Things like spiritual rules about calendar or about diet. Things like don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. The Apostle Paul quotes. Or spiritual practices that were harsh and difficult and even hard, visibly difficult on the body. And so they give the appearance of being humble when you obey them. These alternatives to the ancient way of Jesus are like my weed whacker. I was on vacation, as many of you know, and I just got back and my backyard was therefore overrun with weeds. That's what always happens. It just gets overrun with weeds. Now, instead of me yesterday, when I, had, when I was working on the yard, instead of me sort of getting down and pulling these weeds at the root, instead I got out the weed whacker and I just went after it. So gratifying. <laughs> and against my better judgment, because I knew that underneath, the, underneath, the roots were there still. All I did is gave 
the weeds in my backyard a haircut. That's all I did. <laughs> They're coming back. They're coming back. Possibly even worse because I just spread you know, the weeds further out. Paul says, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, but their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining what's underneath. The desires of the heart. What Paul calls sensual indulgence. See, the way of Jesus stopped working for them, and so they grabbed what was around them. What made sense? I think for Paul, this is like giving up on indestructible cast iron skillet for a cheap nonstick pan that may work well for a year, but will end up breaking and maybe even poisoning your food. We're finding out. So Paul, what does he do? As an apostle, he strenuously contends, and I'm quoting it from Colossians, he strenuously contends for these folks that they reevaluate, that they return to Jesus, that they continue in Jesus, that they take another look, that they not give up, that they see how Jesus is everything that they are searching for and more. And he does this pastorally in two ways in this letter. First, by showing them that Jesus is bigger than the alternatives and bigger than their fears. See, first, Paul tells them, I love Paul's pastoral heart here, actually. He sees them giving up on Jesus. And instead of sort of shaming them, he's sensitive to the reasons or the, 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 the reasons why they're giving up on Jesus. And one of these reasons was fear. And so as a model to us, I think Paul is pastorally in tune with their fears. Instead of, instead of capitulating to those fears, the same pastoral heart that is in tune with those fears says, cast your eyes on all the ways that Jesus is bigger than what you're afraid of. We see this clear. It's in chapter 1 of Colossians. One of the most famous passages in the Bible. We heard it just read by Julianne. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Now, notice what Paul is doing here pastorally. Notice what he's, he's doing to, uh, he's speaking to the fears of these folks in this church. The firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Nothing is bigger than this. Do you understand? So that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of His fullness dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. These folks were afraid. Afraid of the thrones and the powers and the rulers and the authorities. See, for them in their daily life, bad things stemmed from these things. Okay? And Paul says, number one, I understand. I get it. But number two, Jesus is over. So then in chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says, Jesus is the head over every power and authority. I love what Paul does. He does not diminish their fears, does he? Did you notice that? 
He doesn't diminish their fears. He just puts them next to Jesus. It's one thing to say to your child, uh, now, now, don't be afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of. And it's a whole other thing to say, I know that's scary. Jesus is bigger. I know that's scary. I know that's big. I know that's big in your life. I know that's terrifying. I know what you're facing this week is terrifying. I know what you're up against is large, and I know that it is scaring you. I know that. Jesus is bigger. I'm telling you, Jesus is bigger. He's bigger. He's bigger. He's bigger than that. I'm not going to diminish your fears. I just want you to look at Jesus. I just want you to look at Jesus. What are you afraid of? I dare you to call it to mind right now. What are you afraid of? Okay? Jesus is bigger. He's bigger. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is bigger, but he's also better. This is one of Paul's main arguments in Colossians as well. If you read Colossians in one sitting, you're going to notice the same words over and over and over again. And these words, uh, scholars think, were spiritual buzzwords in this ancient city of Colossae. Words like mystery or hidden or fullness. They just are coming up all over the place. And it seems as if uh, the believers, the early Christians here in Colossae, were seeking these things apart from Jesus. And we can think of the spiritual buzzwords in our day, and we can think of the own temptations we, we also have of seeking those things apart from Jesus. But Paul tells them, these things that you long for are actually found and only found in Jesus. I love what Paul does. Once again, he's such a good pastor. So then Colossians 1, 25, just one example that gets at all of them. I have become its servant by the commission of God, Paul says, gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. There's that word. The mystery. There's that word that has been kept hidden. There's that word for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of what? This mystery. You want mystery? I'll tell you mystery. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Everything you're looking for is in Jesus. You can stop your search. Have you ever uh, gone to the grocery and then come home and you start putting the groceries away only to discover that you bought a double, maybe even a triple of something that you already had in the pantry? This happens a lot in our house. I think we have like four bags of chili powder in our drawer. <laughs> Every time we're making chili, we're like, well, I guess we need chili powder. No, we have like a ton of it already. Well, Colossians is basically Paul telling this young church, put your groceries away. You already have everything you need. You're ser- what, you know, what you're searching for, you, what you are laboring to find, what you are even buying at great cost, you already have in Christ. You already have it. In Christ, you are already full. So that Paul writes, in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. If in Christ, the fullness of God is the fullness of God, and we are in Christ, we are brought to fullness. We are complete in Christ. That is Colossians 
in a nutshell. So let me ask, what are you looking for this morning? Is it peace, a sense of peace or a sense of wholeness or a restoration or hope? Maybe it's purpose this morning. It's all found in Christ. It can't be found anywhere else. I think other things might hint at these things. But if it's not the person of Jesus, they will never fill you. My dog um, sometimes gets so hungry that he eats the tissues in our bathroom trash. Anyone else have that problem? Okay, well, your dog will go to such great lengths to fill his tummy that he will feast on tissues. Whenever we go to anything other than Jesus with our hunger, we are doing the same. It may for a moment satisfy. It may even hint at the goodness that is Jesus. Our hunger is real, but it is only met in Jesus. And so two things for you this morning. Number one, I would just say this. Stop your search. Your searching can be over. You can rest this morning. You already have everything in Christ. I'm just going to quote rapid fire from Colossians. You are a holy people, brothers and sisters in Christ. You are qualified to share in his inheritance. You have been transferred into the son's kingdom of redemption and of forgiveness. You are holy in his sight. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. You are mature in Christ. You know the mystery, which is Christ. You are rooted and built up in him. You have been buried in Christ and you have been raised in Christ. You are alive with Christ. Your old self died with Christ. You are now raised with Christ. You are hidden with Christ. And guess what? When Christ appears, you will appear also. In short, you have everything in Christ. You are already complete. And so allow, right now even, your spiritual hungers to be filled by Him. Which brings me to my second suggestion from Colossians this morning, and as we'll see also from Philemon. When we are filled, we can serve. Our quality of love is contingent on our hearts being filled by Christ. It's only when we're truly full that we can actually give anything anyway, if you think about it. This means that we can stop searching and we can start looking around us and serving. In Colossians 3, chapter 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to one another, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of Creator. Listen to this, verse 11. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew. Here, 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 at the foot of the cross. Here, in Christ. 
the location Paul is referring to is in Christ. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. And so then in chapter 2, sorry, 3, verse 12, he continues with all these one another's. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. Admonish one another. You see what's happening? When we settle into the truth that Jesus is bigger, that Jesus is better than every alternative, that he is in us so that we are complete, that can change us to the depths and can actually offer access to the thing we most deeply desire, which is to be a loving person, a sacrificial person. We all long, I think, to be released from the slavery that is selfishness. Amen? We all long for that. Even as we pursue it, we're all like this. I, I, I want to love others in a costly way. I want to. I know that's the way I was designed. And what we understand is that in Christ, He gives us access to this amazing gift. We move from trying always to be filled by things, by using people, to a person who can actually spend themselves for the sake of others' flourishing. Scholar Gordon Fee, he makes the observation that almost all of the implications of our fullness in Christ are, and I'm quoting him, primarily directed towards community life. Think about that. He goes on, not toward individual one-on-one life with God. That's fascinating, because when I hear in Christ, I immediately think of my own private spirituality. I am so glad that I am in Christ. I can have this now. I can feel this now. I don't have to this now. And what what we actually see in this letter is that the in Christ language, all of that rootedness, all of that fullness that we have is actually designed to spill spill out into one-on-one life with others in the community of God. One sign that I think we're on shaky ground is that our faith is only about our spirituality. True spirituality overflows into costly love into our community. And this is where Philemon comes to play. Did you notice as I referenced uh, chapter 3, verse 11, I'll read it again. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised. Here there is no barbarian, Scythian. Here there is no slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Which is why Paul later in chapter 4 of Colossians verse 9 calls Onesimus a faithful and dear brother, one of you. Okay? If this in Christ language does not spill out into the life of Onesimus, it's garbage. Paul's letter to Philemon is basically this verse in action. Paul says in this letter that Onesimus is my son, my very heart, no longer a slave, a fellow man, brother in the Lord, welcome him as an apostle of Jesus. N.T. Wright says, quote, if the only document we had was Philemon, we could deduce the whole of Christianity. Here we have the costly love of the cross in action, breaking down barriers, 
creating unity where there is division, there is no social caste at the foot of the cross. I learned from Fee that Onesimus in time probably became the bishop of Ephesus. Ignatius wrote this, apparently. In God's name, therefore, I received your large congregation in the person of Onesimus, your bishop in this world, a man whose love is beyond words. My prayer is that you should love him in the spirit of Jesus and all be like him. Blessed is he who let you have such a bishop. You deserve it. Supported state could be another man named Onesimus. This is only possible because of Jesus. He is bigger and he is better than all alternatives. I'll say it again. Non-stick skeletons, they work. They do, but they also break down. Some even poison the food you cook. They're easier, but maybe it's time we reconsider cast iron. What is indestructible, what never will, never. Try to break cast iron. It won't, it won't, you will break. So it is with Jesus, okay? So it is with the way of Jesus. Let's go back to Jesus. Is Christianity working for you? If your honest answer this morning is no, it is not. But I'm afraid to admit it. Let's return. Let's return and let's Let's reconsider. Let's reconsider. And let's find life with him, Jesus. Everything we have, everything we need is in you. Our fears are great, you are greater. And so we rest now. And then open the eyes of our heart so that we would not only see Jesus in his beauty, but we would see others in ways in which we can genuinely love and help. Would the gospel that gives us fullness also bring fullness to those around us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.